This episode is brought to you by Zeratech Software Development. Are you a company whose commitment to excellence demands effective software tools? Let the team at Zeratech Software Development help build or enhance your technological systems with mobile, web, and backend solutions. You can find them at zeratech.com. That's X-E-R-A-T-E-C.com. Hey guys, today I sat down and talked to Joe Enrietti. Joe is a 96, actually turning 97 today on June 9th, uh, turning 97 year old World War II veteran. Uh, crazy story, never been further south than somewhere in Wisconsin. Uh, at 18 years old, got drafted, went into the military, became a tail gunner for a B-24 airplane uh and just crazy the the whole story the whole deal so i was just excited to bring him on to hear about that ask him about his sales experience uh business ownership experience even i should say uh another crazy circumstance is he was born on june 9th 1925 he got released from the war on june 9th 1945 and just totally circumstantially uh we just recorded his episode we were supposed to do it three four weeks ago we got postponed recorded it not too long ago and then now it's being released today on june 9th 2022 uh small little circumstance but anyways just fun to hear about his life growing up in the great depression uh living in mohawk seeing that world change going out on this crazy adventure in the military and then you know having a a successful business life after that so just touching on joe and how he fits this podcast he didn't necessarily have an obsession per se uh but for sure through his experiences in the b24 and then he invited me into his house showed me around seen some books and stuff that he had uh and you could tell that that was a huge moment in his life and that helped define and shape him into who he was later uh so i absolutely just honored to be able to hear the story from him and and share that with you guys happy birthday joe thanks for hopping on Welcome to the Obsessed Podcast. I'm your host, Logan Herkus. In this podcast, we get to meet and hear from folks who are obsessed with a wide array of interesting endeavors. We dive into some awesome stories and look at the mindsets and the psychology of those who are obsessed. Let's go. Joe, thanks for coming in today. You're welcome. (laughs) I appreciate it. Uh, Excited to have you on here. Talk about your World War II experience uh just before we got on i was excited to also ask you about some local history and stuff uh can you take me back to your childhood did you grow grow up in this area i grew up in mohawk okay uh in 1925 i was born in 1925 june 9th went to the mohawk schools now i grew up under the depression the big one yeah and uh we didn't have much but my parents were able to, there was, there was uh, five of us, able to keep us warm, clothed. And my, te- my mother was a great Italian cook, and she knew how to make things, how should I say it, good to eat. My father, we didn't have to cut grass. All our yard, which was quite big, he would plant different things to eat. Hmm. And not only that, we had fruit trees, apple trees, summer apples, winter apples that we could store. They were the harder grain. 
and we had raspberries, strawberries, uh, plum trees, cherry trees, uh, and he grew the vegetables, lettuce and potatoes, you name it, he grew them. And what we didn't eat in the summertime, my mother would bottle, years ago was bottling, no canning. Mm -hmm. And they saved the bottles, and uh, so we'd eat that in the wintertime. And like I said, good Italian cook, made it tasty, and uh, made her own bread, and no, no electricity at that time. Yeah. We had a wood stove. My dad would make the wood that was good burning, and my mother could cook on that stove. The oven had a thermometer on it, and there was dampers on the stove. And she would regulate them to if it was in the oven so that that oven stayed like 350. She just opened the damper a little more for started to, to drop down, add some more wood. And as far as cooking on a, on a wood stove, those days, most of our heat and cooking was by wood. Hmm. We had, there was coal too, but that was kind of expensive. So we used to make our wood in, in the forest in the back of our house north of our house we lived on union street yeah and uh with uh my two older brothers were older than me so they would do most of the hard work and i'd still do work but not that until i grew older let's put it that way yeah but uh we'd go out and make the wood and you'd have to burn dry wood because of the creosote that would build up in the chimneys there were a lot of fires in those days because of people burning green wood. And it would coat the inside of the chimney and when that caught on fire, I'll tell you, you had a place. Most people had ladders from the edge of the roof up to the chimneys where they would go and, and we didn't have that great of a fire department, you know. Yeah. And, uh, but anyway, we, uh, we survived us keeping us warm, keeping us food cooked, yeah. Toilet in the house, but no shower there. We had a big tub, and you were lucky to be the one that was the first getting the bath, yeah. which we had to keep clean. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it, it was a, how should I say, great friendship amongst our kids, our close people our age. Yeah. Usually, the ones that were two or three older, they were in a different class. They wouldn't bother with us younger kids they were not like nowadays you go years together and get along and not only that but comfortable with each other sure yeah but uh, that was my life starting up went to mohawk school from the first grade up until till like eighth eighth ninth grade we would go to calumet high school our township would have to pay calumet school district a certain amount of money, I do not know what it was, but we'd have to pay, or they would have to pay for us going to the high school. First going on, we there was no school buses. We would travel on the regular bus system. Hmm. Prior to that, they would go by the streetcar. The end of the line in Mohawk was in front of our house. 
The, state, the streetcar station was like one, two doors down on the opposite side of the road, but when they'd come up with a double car, which they would use when there was a big location, baseball, hockey, or things like that, they'd park that extra car in front of our house. Hmm. And uh, so I'm going to get out of that. We're going into high school. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Started into high school, like I say, ninth grade. And... Uh, Teachers were strict, and we, how should I say, we went along with that. Well, you had to. Yeah. If you got out of line, <laughs> they'd pull you by the sideburns, or one <laughs> of the teachers used to give you a couple of whacks on the hands, yeah. <laughs> which I never got, but, uh, and if you went home, you'd get a little more trouble. But I went through uh, eighth grade there, graduated, uh, you were allowed to either go to in the uh, uh, ROTC or into football, basketball, and things like that. You couldn't take the both of them. Sure. Because they did for fear. fear. I went into the ROTC, and uh, we had the Cuba Golf Course that we would be working uh, in the summertime. And then I worked at cleaning the bank in Mohawk for $5 a week. And uh, good job, had the key, went in that after the people left. And uh, my first paycheck, they leave a note, the president of the bank, Joe come in, his payday. So I went in there and he was sitting like you're sitting in front of that microphone. He said, Joe, here's your pay. And he fingered through the five one dollar bills okay <laughs> well now he said you're working uh you should start a savings account oh now i'm not no dummy a savings account yes oh, how much would i have to put into it he said well he pulled out a dollar bill at least one of these well he could have pulled them away <laughs> i said sure now you take this dollar and go to the teller window and tell her that you want to make a, uh, start a savings account. They gave me a little red book and here we just put numbers in there, stamped the date and uh, that was my first savings account. <laughs> and uh, my first deduction too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't get five dollars, I got four. Right, right. <laughs> but it, I worked there and went through high school. At the uh, the war broke out like in in the forties, and my June 9, nineteen twenty five, I had to sign up for the draft. But they left me going to or finish my education, and they gave me a deferral. Now, during the, my senior year, we had an Air Force lieutenant pilot graduated two years prior to me. Okay. And he was there to recruit with his furlough uh, seniors uh, in pilot training. And five of us signed up for the pilot training 
we had to go to Michigan Tech and take tests. And uh, I was the only one that passed. <laughs> and uh, going back, going ahead a little more, when I passed, they had me going to Truex Field in Madison, Wisconsin. I'd go there on a Friday and on a Greyhound bus from Calumet and return on a Sunday night from Truex Field, Madison, Wisconsin, and get home around in Canyon around five, early enough to go to my classes on the Monday. Okay. And I went there. Now, when I graduated, we had two classes in the high school, a June and a January. I was in the January class for graduation. We'd graduate in January, but we'd all get together for one graduate graduation class in June. Mm -hmm. But in the meantime then, the draft board, head of the draft board, seen me one day in town after I graduated. He said, Henrietti, come here. What are you doing? I said, I was by the post office. He said, picking up the mail, Elmer. No, 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 no. He said, you're, you're uh, going into the Army Air Force. I said, yes. Oh, no, 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 he said. You're going to be drafted. And long story short, he said, uh, you'll be going down to Marquette to get an exam to see if you're qualified. Class A or Class, I think it was F. Okay. And uh, so sure in the heck, letter comes in the mail, you and a contingent from Moak will be going down to, to Marquette for your physical but you will be coming home at night. Well, that's about a week before that he told me, so the phone system wasn't that great, but I wrote a letter to the Air Force down in Truex Field that this boy is no longer able to go into the Air Force, that I'd have to be drafted, and I never heard anything from them. But as we went down to Marquette for our physical, uh, 1A, go down to this, down to this desk down here. Went down there and there's a big sergeant sitting there, not fat, but big. <laughs> and he says, uh, Henrietta, yes, 1A, yes. Uh, you're going to Shepherd Field, Texas. I said, what? Shepherd Field, Texas. I said, when? Oh, he said, when the train comes to Marquette, this evening, you're going to be on that. Oh, no, no. I said, we're all going home. He stood up and he looked like he was six feet high. He said, you're going to Shepherd Field, Texas. You're going to be into the Air Force. And there's one word you take out. Take out no from your vocabulary. From now on, when you're told something, it's yes, sir. Oh. I said, I only got about $5 in my wallet. Don't worry, you'll be taken care of. I went to Fort Sheridan. They were on Chicago there. And uh, they gave me money and tickets from Marquette to get down to Fort Sheridan. Fort Sheridan, they gave me 
money and tickets again by myself to go down to Shepherd Field, Texas, which is by Wichita Falls, Texas. And I went there, started to study to be a pilot, passing all tests, but pretty soon, one morning as we got together before the classes, the uh, one that held the classes said, oh, we got a problem. He said, from now on, if most of you do not have at least two years of college, and you guys with two years of college, uh, you're most likely to fail from here on out. So it's best if you will take, a, not a discharge, but get out of the pilot training and we'll get you into something good. And uh, most of us did. And they put me into a uh, the tower control, Air Force tower control, and I would go to Scottsville, Illinois, just across the river from St. Louis, and which I did. And the first thing we had to do was take up Morse code. Now Morse code, the typewriters are all capital case letters. Yeah, you don't have to shift your keyboard, but the the typewriter was fit for that, and you were on earphones, and. Uh, I was pretty good at that. Not only that, but as you progressed in the Morse code, you'd get it over your earphones and you'd actually type out each word. And then when you got adapted to that, you would have to be able to take the message over your earphones, type it out, and talk to somebody on the side of you. It was like a, I'm gonna say a different sense in the body. Mm -hmm. You could do, the, you had to do this, the three things. And, uh, but it wasn't too long after that to get a letter from the Air, Air Force letter. And uh, if I want to still fly, we need tail gunners on B-24s. And we'd sure like to have you take up tail gunners. If you'd like that, let us know. And I'll tell you, it wasn't two days after that that I said, okay, I was headed for uh, Tyndallfield, Florida. Things are getting hard for me to remember, but Tyndallfield, yeah. Florida, and uh, which I went. More money again, more tickets, and a uh, young kid out of Mohawk. It uh, it was quite an experience, and you were on your own. Yeah, and which I was, and uh, adapted to it real quick. Now, backing up a little bit, my mother and dad are preparing for me to come home that evening. And like I said, m telephones weren't that easy to c connect with, and I thought. Well, he said, we're going to get in touch with your parents, but as I was walking away, my Uncle Joe was on a contingent from Calumet. Ooh, and I said, Uncle Joe, will you go down to my mother's and dad's and tell them that I won't be home? He said, what the hell are you going to do, skip? I said, no, 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 I'm going to Shepherdfield, Texas, the Air Force. <laughs> oh, no, 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 he said. 
we're all going home. I said, you see that big sergeant over there? Go tell him that this boat's just not going to go. <laughs> but then I showed him the papers, and and that we I got into the Air Force in training, graduated from gunnery school, pretty good. Oh, I enjoyed that. Uh, did a lot of flying, and, and it was just a tail gunner school, and the tail gun was in a turret with two fifty calibers. They were close to my arms, made a lot of noise, and uh, they would, the guns would move up and down with your, there was a name for it, and uh, the, tr the turret would train, or turn, let's put it that way. Now, when we were flying, they would like to get at the tail gunner first because my guns were the only ones that could fire at a certain distance from the end of the plane because of the twin tails. Mm -hmm. The others, they'd automatically shut down. So I was actually the only one that could fire. And actually they were the, I was the first one that they were after, the, the how should I say, the other planes that were from like from Germany, mm -hmm. they'd be after that. Made them all. Uh, I skipped quite a part here. While I was, got my wings, was given a delay en route to go to an airfield in California. A 30-day uh, delay en route, they'd call it. Mm -hmm. You could go home, you could go wherever you want, but boy, your little buns better be at that airfield in California. And I would come home with my dis or the papers that I had to go and I'd bring it to the train master at the depot and had him figure out the tickets I would need because they gave me money. And uh, how soon I had to leave Calumet and be at that uh, airfield at that certain date. And he'd figure it out and I'd go to Cap from Florida then to California on my own again while there you made into a crew and we were all young except there was one person there that was a pilot and older than me most of them were about as young as me even some of the pilots weren't too much older but we all called him the the old buck and he would as we were having the missions Prior to the mission, then different things about the B-24, and he'd correct the officers that was telling the pilots what to do, and he wasn't afraid to tell them. They said, what is your experience that you can be telling all of this to us, the pilots, new ones? He said that he was a, an a instructor on B-24s, and he said, there's... They're phased out. He didn't say it, but later years we knew that the 24s were being phased out. He always wanted to get a crew. And uh, now, on I think it was our third flight with the new crew, and uh, on about the third or fourth, I forget what 
we'd go out like in missions over the Pacific. And on this one occasion, uh, and we'd had we'd photograph bombing like the Rose Bowl or the uh, the the big bridge going over Los Angeles. Uh, what the heck else did we Rose Hoover Dam? And we'd have to go there on instruments, and then we'd have fighter planes. They would be on cameras instead of their guns. And we'd have cameras instead of bullets flying out of her. Well, on this third or fourth mission, uh, the pilot says, Tail, you can come out of your turret now. No, let's. The pi fighter pilots want to take more film of views. So we'll get you more film. And the film came in little packages better, bigger than a cigarette package that you'd put into the camera. And he said, we're going to send down us from the crew, the engineer for more film for you back there. Long story short, I uh, did enough for the pilot that wanted them. They said, get out of your turret. You can get out of your turret now. And I went to open my doors and I couldn't open them. Notify the pilot that I couldn't get off can't open the doors, I can't get out of my turret. So we get back to the base, I still can't get out of my turret, which we were never supposed to ride down or take off. We had to be out of the turret. And uh, as we got closer to the base, you could hear through the intercom that the control tower is telling our number, plane, uh, start to take no, how much fuel did you have? And he, they said, how much fuel we had? He said, well, start touch and go landings, which you, you bring it down like you're, you're landing, but then you put the throttles forwards and take off again. I think we made about three passes and all hell broke loose and, and we crashed. And uh, I got left in my turret it was close quarters in there. We had heavy sheepskin clothing because it's pretty cold up there, the altitude we would be on. And we'd, uh, so I bounced around a little bit, but not in the turret. I was pretty close, but as we stopped, it was just in seconds I could smell smoke. And uh, I thought, oh boy. Anyway, I didn't know it, but we happened to land, crash land in where the, where the uh, runways cross together. They take off and land different wind, and that's where the crossways are and for the runways. So they got us, I could feel them. I didn't know it, but I broke away from the plane. And uh, pretty soon I could feel getting dragged. And I was still upright in the turret. The tail was still upright. And after we buzzed around a little bit. But uh, I kept hollering that I was in the, my turret. Well, they didn't expect any 
excuse me, expect anybody in the tort because we were not supposed to take off and land in our tort. But in my tort, if the power went out, which I hydraulics maneuvered my tort and the guns, electricity also. Now, if they were cut off from me, they had another way of turning the turret with a crank on the side of the turret that would turn the turret. The other crank would raise the guns or lower the guns. There were 250 calibers in there. Mm -hmm. And uh, then you had a foot pedal that would fire the guns. Another foot pedal that would get you on the intercom if something happened to your turret flying you know but this I was so I start tapping out the SOS that I knew from prior training one two three that's an S that's a dash SOS and somebody on the ground must have heard that because they were just dragging us off the field and they, pretty soon I see a person come up on a, like on a crane and on a cable and he's looking in there at me and I'm waving and he gets, how should I say, notified the one on the ground that there was still somebody in that tort, not knowing uh, the other nine uh, didn't come out of it. But I came out of it good because they didn't bounce around. The front of the plane is what really took the hit. Where we, the ball tort and me, when we would get out of our torts, we'd sit back of the bomb bay. And that's where the plane would break open, break away from the tail if you landed in the water or everything. Weakest part of the plane, let's put it that way. And uh, right away when they got me out of that tort, uh, took me to the hospital, checked me over, I was in good shape, and uh, checked me all over, and then we, uh, how should I say, I spent the night there. Now, remember when I said about the old pilot? Yeah. So the captain was ordered to take me into the into their quarters. And the captain said, somebody's gonna come and pick you up. I said, yeah, I can see that. No, no, somebody will be in. And they gave me a bunch of books to read, magazines, and I was in my bunk, and pretty soon these four officers come in. One is that old pilot with the scarred up leather jacket. Forrester Research interviewed 206 senior technology leaders in major organizations responsible for software development sourcing. 63% said their software development service partners do not have a full understanding of their end customer. If you're dead serious about moving faster and getting more done, Zeratech Software Development can help you move forward with confidence. Let the team at Zeratech Software Development help solve your problems with mobile, web, and backend solutions. As they align with their clients, they use a proven method to understand the scope of the problem and help demystify the steps to make it go away. 
They will deliver the software solution you need, and they do it with the integrity that you'd expect from a family-owned business in the heartland of America. Schedule a call with the team at Zeratech today at zeratech.com. That's X-E-R-A-T-E-C.com. And he came up to where I was in bed, or just laying down. I was clothed, but he says, Enrietti, he says, I said, yes. Tail gunner, yes. How good are you? I said, as good as the rest, maybe better. He said, that's what I want. We'd like to have you on our crew. So I was with the crew, that crew, until after the war. <laughs> so that's the story on that part. When we got to the States, we were given, oh, we took our, we got the orders to after the war, we got our orders to come back, fly back with our plane on June 9th, 1945, 20th birthday. Unreal. So we took our ground crew with us and a few others that we could fit into the plane and we flew back. The pilot and the navigator, we went to Wales and waited there for the weather and there was two routes that they take from from England over our states to England. And we, they were gonna decide on the route that we would take best on the weather and the whole thing. And I think we took the southern part of that route. route. The top part went to Iceland and then after a few stops for, the, for uh, fuel, and then they would get down to the States. We took the lower one, after a few stops to refuel, we landed at Bangor, Maine, in the United States. Bangor, we went down to Barclay Field or whatever, is close to Washington, D.C., and uh, that's where we left our plane. No, we just came out from England, and they put us through customs. We had to put everything on, on a table, and they went through them. We had a... The Baltort, he had a good 35 millimeter camera and they held those little canisters of film and we gave them money to take the pictures for us and have them developed for each one of the crew and when we got back to the States they would go through these pictures and if they didn't like them they would just toss them <laughs> and if the films weren't developed they just took the canister of films and, and We'd get them. And uh, let's see how we went from here. From there we went home, 30 days rest and recuperation. Went to Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Now they st still needed tail gunners on a B-29. So I went to get a different field to get to be a tail gunner on a B-29. That's the big one now, that dropped the big bomb. And uh, studied on the ground. Never flew in one, but... Uh, did ground study on what it would take to be in there. And uh, in the meantime, then uh, Japanese surrendered. And uh, long story short, they put our B-24 down into Tucson, Arizona in mothballs. They put us, as a, not as a crew, but just 
at different bases, different jobs. We were in mothballs also. Cold War. Our B-25 could still make it into Russia. And what else did I say? Oh, I forgot to tell you. At the last going on at the missions in Germany, we were at the uh, briefing of one of the close to the last missions. We were given a, a flag. I should have brought that with me. Uh, an oil coat cloth flag, and we had to wear that on the outside of our clothing and given a piece of a little card that explained to the Russians that y'all Americanus, that's supposed to be how should I say, our language in Russian, and we were told, now if you get shot down because the Russian army and the German army were close together, we still didn't defeat them and we were told to give ourselves up to the Germans not to the Russians they would more or less shoot us to begin with they weren't too good to us and they were before that now we're in the war with Russia but they didn't treat the Americans too good and uh at the start of the Cold War. And uh, let's see where I left off at. Uh, giving ourselves up to the Germans. We never got shot down. Our plane got banged around a little bit, a few holes, and landing gear wouldn't come down once. And, uh, but I probably mixed up my, <laughs> my uh, interview quite a bit here, but that's no. what happened. You're doing well. You, you you had just gotten to the point where you had come back from and had had 30 days of rest and recovery. Well, that's when we went to Sioux Falls, South Dakota, went into, I was, like I said about our planes being mothballs, they start putting our crew in mothballs. Not, not all together though, but we didn't understand too much why. But see, our B-24 could still make it into Russia, different bases. Our crew was all set to jump into a 24 and go after the Russians. The B-29, which I was supposed to to get into, that's when the war ended. But they still kept us, our plane, and the men that could fly those planes, crews, in uh, mothballs also. Hmm. They, they kept us in there for, I forget how many months, but... Uh, then they discharged us. But now to fly, you all had to volunteer. And if one day came along that you didn't want to fly anymore, you could, they didn't want you to fly in, and you'd get out of it. Not only that, they paid us half our base pay to fly. You had to fly at least four hours a month and uh, so I think at the war where I was in Germany or England I was a sergeant at that time I think it was I think it was around $75 a month 
Now you put half of that on top of the 75, and we were pretty well paid, but uh, it uh, lost quite a few people. And that was a bad part of it, because it usually was about, oh, the officers were not in the same area or, or with the enlisted men. Officers were in one part of uh, their base and enlisted men in their own huts were in some others, but there was about 50, no, 50 would be 10 crews, enlisted men. And uh, that was the hardest part when uh, somebody wouldn't come back. Uh, their beds would be empty. And uh, prior to that, when we first got into flying overseas, you had to designate somebody for, oh, I'm looking for the word, that would get your belongings, let's put it that way. Mm. And uh, naturally I gave my mother's and uh, the crews that would not come back, uh, they usually come in and take their belongings when they'd clear out the barracks, in other words, and they'd come in and take them and send it back home to the families. But that's uh, that was the worst part. I would say is in your mind that, hey, <laughs> maybe this boy's not gonna be filling that bed tonight either, but it, you got accustomed to it. No, not accustomed to it. We had to make 25 missions, and then you would be through flying. And uh, I think they had said that 75 would not make, 75% would not make the the missions, but uh, we didn't get close to the 25, but that's how it went, let's put it that way. The 8th Air Force was stationed in England, so we'd bomb Germany from that way. The 15th was down in Italy, so they'd come from the lower part, and because our missions would last, not last, but we'd have to carry extra tanks, um, Bombay tanks, you couldn't carry as many bombs, but in order to make a long mission, you had two big tanks that would come into the plane. And I think our longest mission was around nine, 10 hours. And uh, that's about it that I can say, unless you want to ask some questions. Yeah, uh, good to hear the stories. I just appreciate you laying out the, the background and the history. Or, but what about that first night when you left on the train, I guess I'm curious about that. When you went to Marquette, yeah, and he said, "No, you're not going home." What was that like? Did you expect? I mean, you must not have expected that. And was that pretty scary? Well, it, to think? see, the farthest I was at that time was Truex Field, Madison. People didn't travel that far, and in our times, in Texas, wow, that. I didn't know much about Texas, but I knew it was far away from where I was. Yeah. And being on your own, uh, I would say that was the only time except Truex Field there where I'd, I'd be on my own, going to that field and coming back, going back again different times. But as far as going as far as Texas, 
Oh, that's like going to the moon now. Yeah. But it, it, uh, I wasn't that old. I was just 18 years old. Just like you take a kid that's 18 years old now, and now Texas isn't that far away now because you can get by plane or stuff like that. But in those days, all my travel was done with trains. Wherever I went was a train. And uh, most of the travel was like that. Not only a train, but a steam train. Diesel wasn't up that much at that time. Diesel engines, I'm thinking about. When we went through the mountains in, ooh, let's see where I came from. Ooh, baby. Las Vegas, I think, where I was training for the, no, not Las Vegas, closer than that. Anyway, um, we went through the mountains and there were two locomotives that pulled us through and they stopped on top of the mountains and they left us get out and get a little walk around. You know, the engines, the wheels on there were higher than this. And there was, and there was two of them, steam engines again also. But that was a, how should I say it? Start of realizing uh, how big our world was. Yeah. From Mohawk, Cayman High School, Madison, Wisconsin, which didn't travel much in Madison, though, it was all at the field. And, uh, but boy, that, that big, that, our United States was big. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The, so that's just crazy, though, to think about at 18 years old, you were picturing coming back home. Oh, yeah. And they said, no, no, you're going home. You didn't get to say goodbye to anybody. How did your parents find out that you had to leave then at that moment? How did your parents find out that you My had to go? My uncle Joe went down there. He did go tell them. Yes. Okay. And, uh, what else was I going to say here? Uh, I was happy to get into the Air Force, not into the infantry. So that, how should I say it? I was excited to get into the infantry because I thought I would be going in. No. Excited to get into the Air Force. Glad I wasn't going into the infantry. So it it was kind of happy news for me mm -hmm. that I was going to be in studying as a pilot, which I never got to be, but it worked out good for me. Let's put it that way. Yeah. 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 So thanks for sharing some of that, that history. Uh, right. But what, a, well, just thank you. Appreciate you telling the story uh, yeah. of that progression and what that was like. Yeah. But so you grew up in Mohawk. Yeah. Uh, depression years, you yep. said, hey? Yeah. But you didn't. That was all you knew, right? When you were just born right into it, you didn't know what it was like not to be in the Great Depression? I'm saying from the initial stages of your years. Oh, uh, we, how should I say? No, we accustomed to it more yeah. than the parents and the people of the United States did. Yeah. We adjusted because we were going to school, walked to school in Mohawk. We'd go home for noon lunch every day, come back. I think we started... I think it was an hour, like 12 o'clock, you'd go home, which was just about three or four blocks from the uh, the house. And then we'd go back for like one o'clock for classes again. And we adapted. Good. Now, if you got into trouble, which there's one little kid that got into trouble. Well, not well, less than 18, I'd put it that way. No. 
grade school, less than that. And he got into trouble. We knew he was in trouble, and pretty soon the state police came up to the classroom, eighth grade, and called his name, and the teacher and the state police trooper went outside, I don't know where they went, into the hall or someplace office, and when the teacher came back, I'll never forget this, she said, now this, he got into trouble, and he said, now you come over here by the window, and I think it was, I think it was on a 36 or Ford that was outside there, and the state trooper at that time, they had those leather shields up from their shoes, and he put little Peter into the back seat, and they said, now that's what happens to you kids if you don't obey your parents or us. And away went Peter, and we never seen him again, but they'd go to reform school. Hmm. And it, it was not just a county jail, it was the next step up because he was stealing. And uh, yeah, he went to, they used to call that reform school. And uh, rather than the county police or that, the sheriff, the state police would come and they would drive him from there, I guess, right down to the, where they were put away. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But so you, but I guess part of what I'm curious about is you have seen Mohawk grow and change and and have all kinds of different things from your many many years there has that been i i guess what i'm curious is trying to draw parallels to how it is today versus what it was like when you were there and how it's different how it's the same stuff like that well childhood right now is very different it's uh they've gone into the electronics we had the new ABC numbers in our head, addition and everything else were, uh, I'm going to say probably none of them can do that anymore. Sure. They weren't brought up in a school like that. But they got these computers and cell phones that they can work better than me, much better. Mm -hmm. They're they're, they're in a different modern age than we were at that time. Uh, I can see where they're how should I say it? Uh, not respecting people in the older ages. Uh, that's just my thinking. And, uh, well, you see a lot of them out of town getting in big trouble with guns. At guns at those days, we were lucky to have a BB gun. Our mode just for shooting around would be slingshots. We'd make them in at the V of a maple tree yeah yeah. (laughs) we make them pretty good we cut the old inner tubes from the wheels of the car that were no more good and we'd make the uh where the rubber were and then we'd have a piece of leather that we'd make and they were pretty fancy Hmm. and we could really pretty good at that (laughs) but it's altogether (laughs) different now i uh i almost think the parents are spoiling them no it might that's just my opinion. Yeah. Because years ago they didn't have enough money to give us, but now it's it's hard to get a a younger person to do yard work for you. I'm finding that out, and most people are, and they don't have to work. They're they're given a lot 
to their kids as they're even growing up. Where we were lucky in Christmas time to get one little toy. Yeah. Now they're just loaded up and, and it's good in one way, but how should I say it? We had to know how to work in our younger days and had to pass grades in grade school, but it was all with a, a pencil, paper, and pens at that time were still with the inkwell. Sure. And you had a pen that you dip into the inkwell, even in high school. And I remember when a ballpoint pen came out. Oh, is that something? And uh, T radio was just starting in those days. Uh, the neighbors had a radio, they had a big horn on it. Atwater Kent, I'll never forget that name. And you had to have a clear copper wire that they'd string from one house to the other, if you knew your neighbor good. And you'd have to get it long and high, and, and that's how it would get the uh, signal. Sure. And, uh, and then the TV, I remember that coming out. We had TVs, but the stations were too far away. The antennas, you had to have a big antenna, and then you had to have an amplifier on your antenna. Then channel six came out, you'd still need a good antenna. And used to call them Yaggies, they were long. And then uh, across the lake station in Canada, they were just the opposite direction. And they made an antenna purposely for that, for channel six, and I think it was channel two. So you wouldn't have to, you could actually, if you had the money to buy a, a direction finder for your TV. And once in a while you'd get a skip from a station uh, on that and you just tune into it, tune your TV and start it off with a little 12 inch one. And uh, it sure has come a long way and of course, my years are there. It's 96, so there's 96 that it came a long way. Yeah. Some in a bad way. Sure. But most of it in a good way if you used it right, let's put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. But <clears throat> what about Mohawk specifically? Because you talked about tr street cars and trains and all this. That's something we don't see today. Now, 41 goes through Mohawk. Yeah. The next street back towards the lake would have been Union Street. And that's the street that the streetcar would come up. And then there'd be horse and buggy tracks on the side of it. Cars, when they, don't see, I was born in 25, so the cars were just starting to come out. And, and they'd go on the side of that track. Hmm. And uh, um, I'm pretty sure they were always on the hour up until like, I'm gonna say 11 o'clock, and then they shut it down. But you could transfer from they had transfer stations to Houghton and Hancock and to Lake Linden. And the car barns with the, there was one, it's still in Lorium. The, the power company has that. But that's where they'd park the trains at night and service them. And in order to get power into the streetcar now, there was a cable that went on the telephone lines, power lines. And they'd, like they'd come up to Mohawk, we were the second house on Union Street, and there were big transformers on the other side of the street, but just probably up to houses. 
big transformers to get the power up for the streetcars. Not only that, living close to the streetcar station, we had power into our homes. No, not any. You probably, we had one light in each room. And from there, my mother, in order, because then the, the iron, electric irons came out. And you could screw out the bulb and put this adapter in there and hook up your ironing board from there and she could iron clothes. Rather than heating up the the old irons that would come on the stove, you'd keep them warm. They'd keep them warm on the stove, and then you had a handle that would clip into. You had about three of those irons that you'd put the cold one back on the stove, take the hottest one you want, clip it on, and they do their ironing. But then we had the irons for the no the electricity for the irons. We had electricity for a toaster. What the heck? Then the washing machine started to come into contact. But they were just a washing machine with the clothes. They'd have about three tubs that they would wash the clothes, put them in one wash, wring them out, and then the wringer would swing over between the two wash waters and then they'd go onto the line. Not only that, we had a wood stove in the basement that would heat up the water in these big boilers. And that's where she, my mother would dip out the water into the washer. The white clothes, she used to boil them in some sort of soap to make them white. In those days, the suits, the uh, grown-ups, men and ladies used to, hell, I got pictures of a picnic in my younger days that the men were in suits in a dress, in a, women were dressed in long dresses. In those days, <laughs> women never grew slacks. And that was up until, ooh, I'm going to say, probably the 40s, slacks were no-no. They are all in dresses. Yeah. Yeah. Thinking, of, thinking about that is just crazy to the, the history of what you've seen yeah. over 96 years like you said of seeing mohawk yeah. and things change and technology and areas change and all that kind of stuff um so you've seen a lot of different eras now see in there was many mining companies that started even from like eagle river down to mohawk and in order to get men and people coming from overseas, they built their homes. The company would build their homes, like Quincy up here and all the other ones, they'd build homes that the uh, the people could rent so they could have their families there. Then you had to work for the company. Now, in our case, my grandfather had the house built on Union Street. They went to Detroit in the early 30s and my dad bought the house from my grandfather. Hmm. But 90% of the homes in Mohawk and Fulton, which are connected, were, were company built. Now, prior to me, after getting out of service, 
long story short, but I got into the CNH security. We had a sergeant come up from Marquette. My brother knew him because my brother worked for Michigan Bell. They coffee clutched and when he said he was coming up to Calumet CNH to build a security department, he said, boy, I've got a brother up there that he's probably looking for a job. He said, send him over and I finally, and I got the job. And there were 27 of us. He dressed us up as, just like the state police were. The uniforms, the belt for the pistol, and we were deputized by the counties. Me and three others were deputized by the Keweenaw County and paid by them, and we'd help the sheriff. At that time, the sheriff never had any deputies, paid deputies. Let's put it. They had part-time that they'd get a hold of if, if they could to help them out. Houghton County only had one deputy, paid deputy. And uh, we had, after about a year that we started, wait, I'm going to get back up a little bit. There was 27 of us, and I've got that picture with every name that's on that picture. We were, the picture was taken in, in Agassiz Field, but Agassiz was there. And, and boy, there were 27 of us there. And uh, for the last few years, I was the last one living that was in that department. Anyway, when about a year we had two-way radios in our vehicle. It was so big they'd put it in the trunk. And the sheriff then could contact us. Keweenaw County, Houghton could contact the ones up around Calumet. And we'd uh, help the sheriff in that way. And uh, it was very expensive for the company. Put 27 men on the payroll every day of the year. And we had one, two, three, four, three station wagons and one car. And uh, they gave us station wagons because the ambulance that CNH owned, it wasn't too, to get somebody out on that in a hurry, wasn't too good, so they bought us station wagons and take the seats out of them, and when the people would get hurt underground, they would come up in a cage. Like the, the body form would be into that cage, they close both sides, and you'd be like into a body form cage who'd come up from underground and then they'd have us ready there by phone and we would take them up to the CNH hospital. And uh, it was quite an interesting life when I look back. And uh, it, uh, it was interesting. So far, uh, good doctors, good medicine, good hospitals, and you better have good insurance, which I'm gonna knock on wood that I have, but that's why a few of us lived to be into the 90s. Years ago, I would say 
I think Roosevelt got us into the uh, Social Security. 62, you could take it at a reduced rate. 65, you'd be on a full rate, but there's not many people that would make it up into those ages. But as we progress in health, uh, we're kind of wearing, wearing, wearing it out because there's so many of us that are getting pretty good. Social Security, we paid into it all our lives, but <laughs> I think we used that up pretty quick. But, uh, but they abused that s system. They would take a lot of money out of it as it grew. And uh, so now Social Security is one of the things they want to take away from the people. And medication, Medicare, they want to take that away, and it's happening. That's anything else? No, not necessarily, unless you have anything you'd want to cover. Um, I'm trying to be respectful of your time as well, and I really appreciate you coming by. Okay. Uh, but I guess, can you get into, so you did security after the service. What did you do for the rest of your career after security? Okay. See, when the picture got out in... For 27 of us. Now Agassiz, the one they got over by the by the old uh, library, that was in a field, but the kids would give it a bath once in a while with paint that they would steal, and they moved it out. But the 27 of us in that picture, huh? We said, well, when when headquarters of CNH see what they've got for a police force up here, they're not going to be too happy. No. CNH had a lot of power with the state government. Not power, but I guess they knew more people. And uh, so CNH fixed up an old captain's building where the first state police post was. And they fixed it up and they got it because our first police, state police post was in Lance. So they would have to come up to Calumet, Mohawk, wherever. And they got the state police to put up an outfit up here in Calumet. State police, so we were out of a job mm. as far as security. They put us into different jobs. I was into the dispatch office, and uh, so I had a good job. But uh, as far as security, they the pay, um, no, the cost was too much, 27 people, and uh, they got the state police, which they still are here, yeah. Mm -hmm. Not only that, they built a new post just out of County, man. Right. right. What else was I getting into here? <laughs> I kind of got out yeah. of that. So just career-wise, oh. I'm curious what you did okay, after that. Okay, now when CNH cut down, now when they shut down, we were all out of a job. So most of the people had relatives down in the city area. So we're out, me included, we're deciding that we're going down lower Michigan for jobs. No. Uh, I, most of the men would go down first, live with relatives or get together at a few and in, in, in rent uh, an apartment. And uh, in the meantime then, my wife's reading the paper. She said, oh, here's a job for you. I said, what? 
Gately's. That was a big company in Calumet. They're looking for a uh, furniture salesman. I said, oh. He said, that'd be a good job for you. I said, now how am I going to make money as a salesman for Gately's? I said, we're out of work. Not only were, but the people we served are out of work too. Well, she used to call me smartass <laughs> in a loving way. <laughs> okay, smartass, but they must know more than you do. I said, okay, honey. I said, I'll go up there tomorrow and look for the job. I went up to Gately's. Now, CNH was still on the verge of coming back or not coming back. But they knew they weren't going to come back. And I went up to get look for the job, and in talking with the guy, he asked if I'd go back to CNH. If it started up, I said, I'm not going to lie to you. I had a good job. And I said, I'm pretty sure I'd be going back. He said, well, look, he says, you're, you're truthful about going back there, and I like what you look like, and you can converse with me, so you got the job. So I get in the job and I call my wife. I said, uh, I got the job. Oh, when you starting? I said, I'm working now. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, I worked there for about a little over two years, I guess. But then one stormy night, now the, the manager was older and I was more or less managing that store and uh, on a February night, I forget the night that the year it was, but uh, it, a big fire went through that part of town, took out our building, which was three stories, elevator, whole thing like that. And little by little, it'd take one store out at a time. Heavy wind, below zero weather, some of the hydrants were frozen and the pressure wasn't that great great usually when they hooked into another fire department huh, they'd steal it from another hydrant so but it, it burnt down and uh so that was i thought the end of me with gately's gately's had sent me to grand rapids and even take your wife they paid for everything for us to school for about i think it was twice down to grand rapids for uh, managing and sales in the furniture business. Gately's had five stores from here down to Saginaw, Alpine on all over. And when the st when that store burned down, they asked me I go out and find out what it would cost to rebuild that store there, which was a sandstone building. And I went out to different places, and they said. It, it amounted to a quarter of a million. I notified them that it would take a quarter of a million. And the next day they said, we're going to forget Calumet, but we're not going to forget you. You still got a job with Gately's. Go around to the other five stores. One was in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, and in... Uh, Auto Marquette there. Anyway, uh, go and pick out the store 
you will have that store. When you get in there, you look around like you're buying furniture or, yeah. And, but don't tell the person that you're going to take his job, which I didn't like that too much. Anyway, and he said, don't take Traverse City because my son is managing that store. So we went to the different ones and uh, we picked out Alpina. Nice town and came back. And then in the meantime, Calumet Furniture. They were in need of a manager. Ankle Kemp was the manager. He passed away. Great hockey player. And I'd go up to Schofield's to eat. And the manager, manner of the loan office. They, they had five loan offices and two furniture stores, one in Marquette and one in Calumet. And uh, Charlie was the manager of the one in Calumet. I'm trying to think of the name of that outfit. That's just slipping by, but it'll come back to me. And uh, he said, boy, the boys from the Wiley Company. Got that right away. Wiley Company. One Judith Bither manager in Calumet. I said, oh, Charlie already made my decision with Gately's that we, I would be going down to, I'm not going to tell you where it is, but I'll be the manager down there. He said, well, would you just come and talk to the owners? I said, for you, I'll go and talk to them. Made appointment for the next day talked to the owners of Wiley Corporation, a loan office, five loan offices, and two furniture stores. And in talking to him like we're talking to you now, he said, why won't you take the manager of our store? I said, well, I committed to one already and they've been good to me. He said, would you mind saying what you made at Gately's in the year? I said, no. I'll, I'll tell you. Oh, he said, okay. Would you take our store if we doubled what Gately's will be paying you or paid you? Wow, I said. Yes, I said, I'm going to talk it over with my wife. I said, I'm pretty sure she wants to stay in the area. And she was happy that I took that and I started there at Calumet Furniture, which is Newman's now on corner of 6th and Oak. And uh, they said, Cecil Rule will be there in the morning, so he'll open up the door. We don't have a key for that store, but you'll have one when you get in there. And Cecil Rule was there, and I knew Cecil from before, and I said, oh, Cecil. How come you're not, you better take this job. I said, I don't need this job. No, he said, I can't handle that. But be glad if you take it. And I took it and uh, how should I say, worked for them for many years. And in the meantime, I said, if this store is ever sold, I want to buy it, which I did. And uh, in the meantime, then, uh, people would come by me as I uh, buy the store. Is this building for sale? I'd say no. Well, how come? Mm. It's just, so I thought, well, you dummy. Put a high price on it. 
and uh, nobody will take it for that money. The ones that wanted it, the bank would not loan them the money. The ones that had the money said, uh, it's too much. Pretty soon, Bill Miller from the bowling alleys in Lorium, he came out to make his deposit at the bank, which was next door to me on the corner. And he comes in, Henrietta is, the building for sale, I said, yes, Bill. He said, you mean it's for sale? I said, yes. I thought, well, that's another one. How much? And I told him, oh, he said, I'll be back tomorrow when I make the deposit of his business. And he said, uh, so I thought, that's another one out of the road. Guess what? He comes back at 11 o'clock. He says, Henrietta, I'm going to take the store. I said, what do you mean? He said, I'm going to buy it. Ooh, I said, he said, you're not going to back out of the deal. I said, no, but I used to make deals for people. I had a sale all the time. And I took the pad that I'd make the deals out, and I wrote the numbers down. I said, now, this is the number. Yeah, he said, you think I'm deaf? I said, no, but I said, this, this is just the building, not the inventory. No. Yeah. He gave me the amount that he could that he was able to have, which was quite a bit. And I said, well, I guess it's gone then. I said, who's your lawyer? He said, Paul Tomasi. I said, he's my lawyer too. So I said, it looks like it's a going deal. You pay for half and I'll pay for half of the lawyer and that's the way it went. Now, I'll Jim Larnahol and Jim Jokery, good friends, younger than me, they said, oh, why don't you come with us now in the funeral home? I said, oh, I'm not a mortician. No, no, business-wise. I said, oh, well, not right now, but I said, if you really get into a bind, I said, I'll jump in. So a while after that, at a rotary meeting, Jim Jokery sitting on my side here, we both belong to the Rotary, which we meet every Wednesday. And I said, Jim, problems? Oh, sick, he said. My partner's worse than me. Do you remember what you told us when we first asked you to come with us? You said if we could use you, you'd come with us. I said, yes, he said. Well, we're going to leave it. No, we're going to sell it to his brother-in-law, not his brother-in-law, son-in-law. That he was, um, what do you call it when you're practicing? There, there's a proper word for it. Anyway, he's been there, and uh, they're going to make arrangements for him to get it, but he's going to have to pay for it. And he'd like for the three of us to get him going. Joel Karanen. Sure, yep. And... I said, oh, meeting next week? He said, no, right after this meeting. So we made the meeting, and I started with Joel, and uh, he still keeps me on a staff, but uh, that's almost 20 years ago. Yeah. Till now. Then I finally retired. Right, right. <laughs> but worked for him. I worked, Joel and I worked for, ooh, quite a few years together. I was not a mortician. But uh, a good person, good with a family. Got, I think there's five kids in there. Yeah, five. And uh, 
treats them well, and hard worker, good with people, and uh, yeah. And then we got the two other younger ones, morticians to come in, and I started to take it real easy then. Because I could go out and pick up a person from like the hospital where they had an elevator that they could, I could take the party out and correctly, let's put it that way. We had, we dressed up when we'd go to a home. To, we'd need two people in a home. Most homes were a couple of floors down the stairs. So he and I would go to pick up two at, we'd go and once in a while we'd go to the hospital, but most of the times if he'd be busy and I'd go to hospitals, senior buildings, and pick up the body, and uh, we went like that. Very good to work with, good family, knew him well. He puts me in the Trap Rock Parade. Yeah, yeah. Do you go there? No, I haven't, but I should. My wife has gone to the Trap Rock Parade, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> Um, pretty big he got a big sign for my golf cart and we go down in golf cart my Uno Isaacs and me and him were the same age he was a five days younger and I used to call him the kid he'd call me the old man born the same uh, June but I think he was on the 15th and I was on the 9th but we got along Uno just died uh, couple years ago okay anything else the sales end of things i've been in sales for seven or eight years i really enjoy it did you enjoy it did you know that you would i guess did you enjoy the sales working with customers definitely doing that? and i always try to deal well with them yeah there's not one that i sold merchandise to sometimes thousands and thousands of dollars that I can't look them in the eye right today. And they'll say, oh, I used to sell good furniture, Ethan Allen. And they said, that furniture was great and you gave us a deal, great deal. Now their kids are even remembering that. And uh, like I said, good furniture, use it as it's supposed to be used. And I said, that'll last a lifetime for you people and you'll be giving it to the, put it in your cottage or giving it to the kids. And that's what the people tell me. Yeah. But if you're going to sell something, and I always told them, if there's something wrong with it, you tell me, don't tell your neighbors. You come and tell me and I will get it corrected for you. And nine times out of 10, the factory would, if there was a bad piece or something like that, they would go for it because I used to buy quite a bit from the, I'd even go to the factories and uh, they'd go good for it. Like I said, if they didn't, I would. Sure. But if you sell something, you make sure you'd sell it to your mother and, 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 and sales, how should I say it? Some sales people like to, how should I say it? They don't treat the people like they should. Mm -hmm. And it, it's, a, it's a good profession, uh, a good salesman, selling a good product. You can make money. Not too much now in car dealers, but uh, in the furniture building, uh, business is still good. 
but it costs a lot of money, like everything else in business nowadays. Oh boy. No, it's just not a nine to five job. Mm -hmm. If you own it, <laughs> you can spend many hours. Your 40 hour week is gone. Yeah. Because you have to take care of it. And uh, hours don't mean nothing. Right. I'd go out in the evenings if somebody wanted to purchase furniture. I'd go up to the store. I didn't care what it was. I'd go up there and sometimes you wouldn't sell it. But you'd make an effort and nine times out of ten, it was sold. Yeah. Not only that, but on Sundays, you had nine apartments up there. Saturdays, no, I'm going to back a little bit. To help, I say, now, Fridays, we stay open. Years ago, they stay open. Oh, I forget what time. Seven o'clock or nine o'clock. All the stores in Calumet would stay open late on the Fridays. Huh. If you people want to work, because I had people that drivers, a bookkeeper, and if you want to work, you can work on the Fridays. Well, uh, no, but I would get in there. Saturdays, we would be open. I'd schedule different ones off during the week. And you're going to be working the Friday or the Saturdays. But even Sunday then, I'd go up to the building and check around. Because with the nine apartments, I wouldn't knock on the door, but just walk through the halls, make sure everything was okay. And mm -hmm. But it's, it's uh, your own business nowadays. Most people are better off working for the government. Sure. There's not... See, like, I never had, pen yeah, I take that back. I had a pension from CNH, $39, and that pension is still coming today. Now, you, you figure how they had to project that <laughs> this old boy's going to be 96 and still get that $39 every, I better knock on wood, but <laughs> it's better to kick in the buns. But it's, uh, and my wife worked for Woolworths. For 25 years, she passed away 30 years ago, but she had a pension. The Woolworths had a pension, and at that time, uh, you could designate to your spouse. And she said she was going to give me half of the pension. I said, no, no. And they would take a cut, you know. I said, no, no. I said, I can always go out and make a, make a living. You keep all of that for yourself. Unknowingly, she had put me down for, I think it was a quarter of her pension. And they had a good pension plan, and that was $79 plus cents a month. Now, she's been dead for 30 years. The store's been gone. That pension is still coming to me. It's unbelievable how they could project the money part into the pensions. Yeah. And uh, right now, I think probably the state is the only one to give you a pension. Our little county gets a pension. Mm -hmm. County, and I think Houghton County also. And uh, had people with good jobs that went to the county, try to be or be elected. Not only that, hired because the place they had would not have a pension plan or uh, benefits. Mm -hmm. And they went to the county pension plan and benefits. Yeah. Not only that, no. 
the virus has screwed them up. I don't know if you know it, but most of them didn't go full time then, but they still got full pay. Now I can see for a while, but hell, this is a couple of years that we had the virus that you just can't get the same pay and just work maybe three days, maybe less than that. Right. If you can work less than that, that's what we should cut it down to. They're surviving. The people they represent, they're surviving. Mm -hmm. But it, it's a thing that shouldn't have went on. Once the virus got, how should I say it? We, not, we didn't cure it, but as far as the, uh, the state, I think they're the only ones that could go that long without people working. Right, right. Did you know that? No, I, I think I was aware of it, but not on a, like I'd heard about it a little bit, but not on a... Yeah, because yeah, I know yeah. about it. <laughs> sure, right. Yeah. Yeah. But, no, again, just trying to be mindful of your time, so I just want to end it and just say thank you. Really appreciate you hopping on and telling some of your history and telling some of your stories. Okay. Yeah. Good. It was fun to hear. Well, it's, how should I say it? I don't look forward to interviews, but I figure it's going to help somebody... And uh, you read the paper today, it's going to be in there a little bit of Channel 6 was on it, I think, yesterday already. And they interviewed me for half an hour, but they, they, they cut it down quite a bit. I didn't even see the interview that I had with them, but mm. big deal. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. It's yeah. just because you've got a unique perspective. You Like you said, you got 96 years I'd seen a lot and been through a lot, so it's just... There's quite yeah. a few changes that came up in those years. Yeah. How old are you? 28. You're young kids. Yeah. Real young. Yeah. Now, see, it, it's uh, just like they say, mileage on the car, now it's over 135,000, 150,000. Well, years ago, 40,000 miles, especially in the cars we used for CNH and the station wagon. When it hit the 40,000, you know, they'd put them out on bids. It bid up the place that, that they're going to sell it. Whoever was the best deal, they took it, but 40000 See, But now, these cars are The only thing that gets them now is rust, I think. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. But thanks, Joe. Really appreciate it. Okay. Hey, guys. Thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have and you feel so inclined, share this podcast with your friends. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen and give us some feedback with a review. Until next time, thank you.